This is Brian Felt, the director of athletics at Seton Hall University, and you are listening to Left Coast Pirates. Let's go Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? How you doing, Tommy? How was your Christmas? Oh, my Christmas was great, and this morning has really got me pumped for the Big East Conference play, man. I coached all three of my daughters. We had four hours of practice. We're ready for this, man. I am super excited, and the women's team went into Hinkle and beat Butler, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Really? I got nothing. Are you, you're gonna get hit me with the women's butler. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. They went into Hinkle and they showed them what's up. Good, good for the ladies, Tommy. Speaking of those of ladies, uh, did Santa bring your three little ladies everything that they wanted? And my credit card bill's gonna kill me for the next six months, baby. <laughs> well, I, I want to say that it was a very good Christmas in the Desiree household, but I want one more Christmas gift before the new year starts. I want to see Miles Powell take the floor for the Big East opener against DePaul. Don't you? Obviously, I would love to see it. I just want to make sure he's ready. Well, he's cleared the concussion protocol. That's the big news uh, this Sunday as the team travels out to Chicago. You got Adam Zagori reporting, though, via text message with Kevin Willard that Powell is going to be doubtful for the DePaul game on Monday and probable for the Georgetown game on Friday. You know what? I, I don't know what to believe anymore with injury news and, and Kevin Willard. So I, I want to have some fun here. I mean, obviously everyone wants to see Miles Powell play, you know, but Willard had an opportunity to address the media before the flight out to Chicago to play this big matchup against DePaul. And he gave us some fun quotes to kind of pick at like we always do. So I want to play a game called fact or fiction. I'm going to read you the quote. And then you tell me fact or fiction based on the question that I have for you. All right. Okay. Before we get there. So this week on the podcast, Mike is going to force me to play fact or fiction. In addition to that, we will discuss the Big East Conference opener against DePaul. We'll talk about the all-decade team. And then Washington Post writer Ava Wallace joins us to help us go behind enemy lines and let us know what there is to know about the Hoyas of Georgetown. So, Mike... Let's play your little game. Do you want me to read the quote and then you can come in and say fact or fiction? No, I want you to play this time. I'll read you the quote. Then I want to hear your response. Okay. Gotcha. Here, here we go. So like I said, as the team is boarding the flight for Chicago, Willard is basically making a comment relative to 
what Powell has done activity-wise. He says, he practiced the last two days. I don't know what his status is right now for the game. I'm not sure if he's ready to play yet. He's had so many days off, and he's only practiced twice. I know for certain he'll be back for Georgetown. Fact or fiction, Willard knows the status of Miles' ability to play Monday and is just playing possum. That is a big, fat fact, Michael. There is no way he boards that plane if he doesn't know one way or another. As a matter of fact, I think you don't even want to fly if you've got any sort of negative uh, side effects coming up from a concussion. So he knows exactly whether or not Miles is playing tomorrow night. I agree, and it's it's contradictory to the text that he sends Zagoria. If you know that being on a plane could be detrimental to the recovery and you think that he's doubtful for the DePaul game, why would you even mess around and bring him out on the trip? So I'm with you. I'm going to say fact he knows that Powell has the ability to play Monday. He's playing possum a little bit like he did in the Michigan State matchup, and, and we'll go from there. If, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and you know the Hall is going to have to kind of gut it out like they did in the Maryland matchup. All right, quote number two. If he does play, it's going to be a spot here and a spot there. Against Georgetown, by the time we get there, I'm hoping he could be you know into the mid-upper 20s minutes-wise. Fact or fiction? If Miles has the ability to play 20-plus, he has the ability to play 30-plus if need be. I'm going to say fiction there. I don't think you want to bring him back fast and furious. I think you do want to see what he can give you in low, in limited minutes. So I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say he starts, but he's got quick hooks. Okay, so I'll say fiction relative to the DePaul game. I'm going to say fact relative to the Georgetown game. If he's back in that Georgetown game and they hypothetically lost the opener at DePaul, it's kind of going to almost be like a a mini must-win game early on. You don't want to start conference play 0-2. If Powell's into the flow of the game and and the Pirates need him in bigger doses, I think that they're, they're going to play him as much as they need to play him. I don't think there's going to be restrictions for game number two at this point. All right, before we dive into 100% of the DePaul scouting report, I want to play one more quote for this game. It will be relative to the DePaul matchup more specifically. Willard when was asked how he's going to handle the potential loss of Sandro against the big lineup that DePaul is going to run out there in their front court. And he goes, this might be the first time we play them together referencing Gil and Obiagu. Fact or fiction? We oh, will I... see the Twin Towers combination in the lineup together. I think that's fiction, man. I don't think we see that. I don't think we've seen anything from either one of them that tells us that they can run out there on the wing and defend that guy out there because you're not just going to plant two trees down low and tell them to go at it. So, no, I don't see that happening. And not be silly. You've got enough size. Tyree Samuel is not a small body. And lo and behold, my man, Torian Thompson, is also not a small body, Michael. So you've got plenty of size to avoid having to play Two legit seven foot two guys. Well, the only reason or the only way that they could take the court together is in some form of a zone. I, I think we agree upon that. I can't see him playing a standard two three zone just for the, the point that you already brought up, which is one of those guys having to extend out and cover the wing. I don't think they have the ability to 
uh, recover that far away from the basket or match up against a more athletic, agile, small forward. What if they went with like a, a different hybrid of a zone and they went with like a three, two and let the two of them kind of play down below and try to extend the D on those wings with the three look up, up top. Even at the three, two, you're still going to have the chances of them running out there. It's not like you're just planting them and then running three guards at the top. So I just don't see it. And that's no mockery on either one of those guys. It's just not their game. I mean, this is a different kind of big, you know, they're just, just those old fashioned big guys. Okay, so this is why I really can't take a Willard quote seriously. You know, I, I don't think there's any legitimacy to the Twin Tower quote. And also, you already brought up Torian Thompson. When Sandra went down with the broken wrist, here was his quote post game. He goes, I think the four days will build some confidence for Tyrese and Jared at that spot and build me some confidence in Torian because he can score the basketball down low. He really can. Have we even seen a blip on the radar? from Torian since that comment at the end of the Iowa State game? We hadn't seen him in the Rutgers game when we got blown out by 20. We didn't see him in garbage time against Prairie View. We didn't see him or Darnell Brody against Prairie View, but we did see an Isaiah Avent sighting there. I don't know, man. It's, it, it's almost to the point where I'm wondering if it's personal. But why would you even throw that quote out there? That's kind of my whole point is, you know, the fan base or there's a portion of the fan base who is starving to see Thompson probably take the court because of this offensive skill set or to possibly just, you know, turn the corner and contribute like they thought he was going to contribute when he announced his transfer from Syracuse. Why even put that fodder out there and then for the next three games, don't even go down that path of even using him? I, it, it makes it hard to listen to any of his quotes and take them with any seriousness. It just, it just, I don't know. I can't do it. And if you were going to get him in the flow, Prairie View was the game to get him in the flow. Because right now, we've got our Big East opener coming up against DePaul. And guess what? This wasn't your previous year's DePaul. This may be your father's DePaul that comes out there. So, Mike... Let's talk about our opener against DePaul. They were picked to finish 10th this year after finishing 8th. In addition to that, their coach was suspended for the first three games of the season by the NCAA. It wasn't like a Willard situation where the school said, hey, we're going to suspend you ahead of any kind of NCAA ruling. We're going to get ahead of it. They had their backs against the wall. And look! 12 and 1 right now with notable wins against Iowa, BC, Minnesota, Northwestern, and Texas Tech. All right, let, let, let's rewind for a second. I, I think these coaches' suspensions are a bunch of baloney. You want to say it's a notable, you know, point of their resume for this season, but do you even see who they played to start the season? They specifically lined up their schedule to face a D3 team and two opponents that have a combined record of 1-16 versus Division One opponents so far. They, they had three extensions of exhibition games, just like Seton Hall did with the Kevin Willard situation, you had the one exhibition game that he was suspended and Wagner was basically a layup. It's the same situation here for Lato. There, there's no teeth in these suspensions. It's not like he got suspended for the first three games of the Big East season. That's what they should do. If you want to suspend these coaches, suspend them for conference play 
then it means something. That wasn't my point, though, Mike. My point is they were starting off the season like a typical DePaul season. They were going in. They they made a little bit of a jump to eighth. Imagine that, making a jump all the way to eighth last season, picked for 10th this season, picked for dead, man. And the coach, Dave Lado, gets suspended for improper uh, recruiting violations. And you're, you're getting recruiting violations for a crap team? What? They're not a crap team. They're, they're they turned it around, they're... didn't they? I will it's still to be determined, but the 12 and one is not a 12 and one to kind of raise your nose at and say, Oh, it's a bunch of cupcakes where they got to play them all at home. So as you've already mentioned, they got some decent wins there. And what really stood out to me is when Lato came back for that first game off of the suspension, they played Iowa at Iowa for the Davit games and they blew the doors off of Iowa. It wasn't even a close game where maybe they pulled away late in the second half. They had them down by 20-plus right from the jump, and they never let them up off the mat. And then, to be honest, you know what? There was a lot of hype going into that Texas Tech game. And it was pretty much a mirror image of what Seton Hall did against Maryland. It was a rock fight. Neither team could basically throw the ball in the ocean. But that team had showed me some onions. I mean, they were down by three late, and they hit a three to send it into overtime. And it wasn't a deep, it wasn't like a, you know, a, a cheapy. It was a, a deep three by Coleman Lands, and the place goes nuts. I mean, the building probably wasn't sold out yet because the, the fan base is still trying to feel them out. But the 5,600 fans they had in there, it felt like 10,000 plus just coming through on the television. I mean, it was an exciting game. Big blow for big blow down the stretch with guys stepping up and making buckets, even though, you know, the final score was played in the in the 60s it was it's been an impressive start I, I know it's also not much to write home about when you're talking about bc and minnesota but those are two true road games that they've played so they've won three big 10 true road games this early in the season because they didn't play one of those thanksgiving neutral site tournament kind of situations this is an impressive 12 and one record relative to what we're used to seeing from DePaul, bottom line. And how are they doing it? They're relying on a big four of their own, Mike. They've got Charlie Moore, who's a junior, who was allowed that transfer uh, exception. He came in, he's averaging almost 16 points a game and six and a half assists. We should be recognizing him from his past. He played at Cal for a season as a freshman when the Pirates won back in Hawaii in the 2015-16 season. He transferred over to Kansas, and I believe he sat out the year that we actually lost to Kansas in the tournament. And now he got an immediate uh, waiver, like I mentioned previously, to play. In addition to that, Paul Reed has been playing like a beast. He's averaging a double-double with almost 16 points and almost 11 rebounds. And they're getting 10 points apiece from Jalen Butts and Jalen Coleman-Lance, who hit that big shot you mentioned previously. I mean, let's let's stay focused on these four for a second. Not only are Charlie Moore and Paul Reed having good statistical seasons to start the year, Moore is leading the Big East in assists per game, and Reed is leading the Big East in rebounding per game. You know, these are not guys that are just kind of, you know, filling the stat sheet against, you know, lesser competition. Like we've already mentioned, they've already played five Power five conference schools in that 12 and one. 
And on top of that, the Charlie Moore waiver is a bigger news story than than meets the eye here relative to DePaul. He is the type of player that you know got recruited from Cal to Kansas. Maybe he got kind of caught in a log jam or just kind of didn't fall into the favor of Bill Self. But this is a guy that Self thought could play his point guard, his lead point guard role potentially, you know, for a team that's basically won the Big 12 for the last decade. So now all of a sudden you're adding a piece to the puzzle that I think most coaches didn't know that DePaul was going to have or how he was going to have an impact because he only averaged like two points a game last year at Kansas. This kid can play. I mean, technically he's in his senior year in school, uh, even though it's his junior year of eligibility. This is a leader on the floor that they have not had for a long time. And, and then to be honest, Reed is just a matchup nightmare and he's already proven it in the in the two times that he played this last year as well thank goodness they're getting these numbers from the top four because their bench is not deep they basically play an eight-man rotation and they rely on their starters to almost play 30 minutes a game well i mean that's why you know the individual matchups against their big four are probably going to be the telltale sign of how seton hall does in this game let's kind of go through those matchups you know individually here so let's start with more again and I'm going to assume that Quincy McKnight, since he draws the point guard assignment for everybody else in the past, he's going to still draw that assignment against Moore. And against Texas Tech, Moore played a total of 43 minutes, had 10 assists, but he was also 2 of 15. Hence, DePaul kind of struggled to score in that game. I kind of see a lot of what McKnight's done to previous point guards, i.e., you know, an Anthony Cowan from Maryland, you know, a Marcus Howard from Marquette. If McKnight can slow down more, I think it kind of cuts the head off of the snake a little bit. And I think the Paul's going to end up in a game where it's all inside the paint and it's going to be this rock fight, potentially uh, assuming Powell doesn't play. You might get a similar game to what we saw against Maryland. Agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely. Now, you know, what frightens me is, is that our bigs now we're talking, we talked about a second ago, whether we're going to play both of the twin towers at the same time. But we've shown that our bigs have got some issues handling the quicker, more athletic forwards. The guys that kind of try to pound it inside are a different story, but guys that can move give us trouble. And Paul Reed right now is is that guy. He's athletic, and he can give us a whole lot of trouble. I think Paul Reed's playing at an all-biggies level right now. And this is after he dominated us last year. If you remember back, he went 12-9 and at the game that we lost at DePaul. And then on the game that we had to have in the rematch, he went 21-14 and in that game. And that was just a back-breaking loss for us. We didn't have any answers for him. So I, I understand why Willard wants to play potentially the Twin Towers. You know, Butts is an aggressive power forward slash center for them. He, he likes to crash the boards. You know, he, he's more of a, you know, a, a garbage type dunk, get the crowd, you know, involved emotionally with, you know, his scrappiness. And, and, and that's going to cause two guys on the front line that you have to account for. So I understand why Willard might want to throw the Twin Towers look at him, but I, I just don't think they have the agility to keep up with their athleticism. What I would do is if I'm going to put those guys on the floor and if Butts is doing anything by the rim, He's going to have to earn it. They got to foul him. You can't let Butts get the crowd involved with a thunderous putback dunk that kind of gets the energy in the building going. I got to put him on the line. Butts shoots 41% uh, from the charity stripe, and that would be a Seton Hall's advantage to utilize all 10 fouls at the center position against Butts, if you ask me. 
Now, one thing that we didn't bring up about DePaul as a team, last year we went 0-2 against them, and they were 8th in the conference. If if we split or if we don't lose those games, they're ninth or 10th. This isn't that team. This is a different kind of DePaul team. Now, Mike, me and you, we remember when DePaul was actually good. And you don't, you can't go back 10 years. You got to go back 20 years. You got to go back 25 years to when they were pumping out guys to the NBA like Rod Strickland and that, and that sort. Here's the difference between this team and I think the team that we've recently watched. There, There's no players like an Eli Kane on this DePaul team that just had poor shot selection possession after possession that would kind of bail you out as the opposition. I like these four guys. They play very well as a team. They, they know their roles that this is going to be a tough matchup. And let's be honest, since the big East went to the, the new conference alignment, DePaul is six and 10 against Seton hall. Did you know that that's almost 18% of their total wins in big East play against us? Wait a minute. Did it drives you me say- nuts. Did you just say Eli Kane's not on the roster? Eli Kane is no longer there. No, he has moved he on. Was, oh, gee, that guy was on that roster for like seven years. I figure he was going for his doctorate. <laughs> I mean, this is just a team that we shouldn't be having issues with historically, yet we have. So we're going to have to kind of put our previous issues aside, not take them for granted, and, and we shouldn't. But what we see on paper from this team should absolutely have this have Seton Hall prepared to go in and expect a hell of a game, especially for the fact that it's the opener of the Big East regular season. I guess there's no other way around it. So you brought up an interesting point. You used the term historical. This weekend, there was a lot of talk about the all-decade teams. As we're closing out the 2010s, we're going into a new decade People were throwing around any list they could. And one list got a little play on Twitter. It was the all-decade Seton Hall team. And it got me thinking, and it got me involved in our conversations here. So I decided it was a good idea to bring this up, and I'll give you my all-decade team, Mike. Are you ready for this? Fire away. This should be interesting. Go ahead. Okay. In no particular order, we have Angel Delgado, Kadeen Carrington, Miles Powell, Isaiah Whitehead and Fuquan Edwin with honorable mentions going to Desi Rodriguez and Sterling Gibbs. All right. That's a good list. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with that list. You got basically four of the guys that were from the, the most recent regime that have got the pirates back to the NCAA tournament. But I feel like you're missing some guys from this list. I'm not saying they deserve it. They all belong in the top five, but even an honorable mention category. How about her Pope? or Jordan Theodore, or where's Jeremy Hazell on this list? I mean, Hazell currently is the program's second all-time leading scorer, and you don't even have him on the list at all. I mean, how is that possible? Okay, well, first of all, Mike, I think the whole concept of breaking up these lists into decades or quarter centuries or anything of the nature is a little arbitrary, to be honest with you. It's kind of pointless, but people like to take containers and round numbers and it appeals to them i mean hell vh1 i think spent 10 years throwing out lists out there to show you the top 10 this and top 10 that so fine we're gonna play the game but we're gonna go according to my rules so rule number one 
since the college season rolls over two calendar years technically, it's really not a team of a decade if you start, if you start counting results uh, in the 2009 calendar year. Because if you start in 2009, you're getting 11 years. Or if you start seasons and you start the 2009-2010 season, you end up having to totally ignore what happens here in 2019-2020. So you can't have your ache, you need it too. We're going plain old calendar decade, 2010 through 2019. Additionally, additional, let me finish. Additionally, my players have to have had at least two years in that decade. Unless you've had a single season of such epic proportions that it's broken every record known to man. And I don't think anyone's had that here. And so this kind of takes Jeremy Hazel out of the, the context here. And again, I think this whole decade thing is arbitrary. But if so, you look so at included. So, so take your stupid rules, sorry, and throw them out the window. No, you, you're, you're me- telling me the decade, man. You made, they called it a decade. It's the decade. Jeremy yep. Hazel played 38 games in this decade. That's only a third of his entire career. Or if you want to count just seasons, he played just 18 games in that last season. It's semantics, though. He essentially no, played his semantics. junior and season he, he, season. Just because you had an 18-game stretch or a 30-game stretch, I'm sorry, man. You don't make up for what other guys did in longer periods of time. Do you remember the Final Four team as the 88-89 Final Four team, or do you remember them as the 89 Final Four team? Mike, you called it the decade team. It's all decade. The decade starts in 2010 and ends in 2019. That's how it works, Mike. I, I, I'm just saying, if we go based on that premise, what happens for the remainder of this season kind of takes, I'm not saying it kicks them out of the top five, but it does take a lot of the accolades that we expect Miles Powell to earn this year and kind of takes it off of his resume for the all-decade team. And I'm not saying he doesn't then belong on the top five, but he's definitely further down on that list if he doesn't get to earn All-American status, if he doesn't get to earn Big East Player of the Year, if he doesn't get to lead the team to a a potential Big East championship. Those things go away if you're going to play with these rules. So from a semantics perspective, let's let's Powell have his second half of this season. Give me Hazel because in my opinion, no knock on Foo, I think Hazel belongs in that five spot. I really do. And if you want me to nitpick, I mean, what the heck did Isaiah White do? His first year was a complete bust, and he really struggled for his, his first, first year. Was year. not a complete bust. You, I don't understand the Isaiah backlash. I'm sorry, he's not that guy, Mike, that hits that layup that you like so much. I'm sorry, he's flashy. If he doesn't stand on his head in that Big East Tournament Championship game, like, do you know what we have in the past 10 years? Bupkis. We don't win that tournament game without him. He was the best player on that team, Mike. And people hold a, a bad tournament game against him like he like he stole their children, man. Come on, burned down someone's house. You need to get off of it. 
Look, I, I love Isaiah, and the reason why Isaiah should be on. No, you don't, Mike. On... Come on, come let, on. He's let me, listening. Let, you don't love him. I, 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 I poked here because I wanted to have this soapbox opportunity to kind of get something off my chest. But before I go th- down that path, let let me re- retract a little bit. I, I do love Isaiah. He's kind of the pie piper that kind of brings the recruiting class in to get everything going in the right direction again. For that alone, he holds you know his place in Seton Hall history. Therefore, he should be on this All-Decade team. He does accomplish uh, All-American honorable mention. He was All-Big East first team. But here's the issue that I just need to kind of get off my chest. I am tired of people saying that he brought us a Big East championship. You said it. You said it correctly. You said Big East tournament championship. But that eats away at me when everybody starts kind of, you know, oh, we've gotten a championship. No, we didn't. We won three games in three days. And those were – three glorious games in three days because they knock off two teams in the top five. And you know what? It was a chance for us to be at the, you know, the top of that, that mountain again, per se, you got to beat Villanova who goes on to win the national championship. It was a classic game. There's so much to love about that moment, but Seton hall ends up getting a six seed and they were projected going into the big East tournament about being an eight or a nine seed so that they win this glorified championship and they move up three seed lines. I would like to see someone get measured for greatness and be measured on Big East regular season championships, which I know that's why you hold someone like Terry DeHair in such high esteem. But let me tell you what would have made it interesting for me thinking back about Jeremy Hazell. Now, Jeremy, in his senior season, got injured, and he missed probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 14, 15 games. If he played 18 games and he was averaging about 32 games a season that year. So he's missing, you know, you're talking about 14, 15 games. If he t- if you took his senior average and gave him back those, those 32 games, he gets to about 2,422 points, which puts him just, uh, just south of Terry DeHair. Now, when he was injured... He was balling, and I know it's lower lower competition, but when he came back, it took him a little bit to get into a stride, and that last part of that season, he was balling again. If he averages 22 points plus, he breaks Terry's record, and oh, we're oh, not, I, and he's breaking it with ease, and I'll tell you, if he does that, I, I take that 38 games, or at that point, it'd be more, obviously, but I put him in that top five. He wasn't just balling against you know lesser competition. He got hurt against Alabama in their preseason tournament uh, matchup in the first game of that you know eight team tournament. He was the most efficient I've seen him in his shot selection that I had seen him in his entire career. I think the light bulb had kind of gone off for him. Kevin actually got into his head and was showing him what he needed to do to become this better player. We saw a similar transformation after one year under Kevin with Isaiah, more of like a year and a half, where the light bulb goes off, and all of a sudden Isaiah is playing at a high level. You know, Hazel kind of did a little bit of what he did under the Bobby Gonzalez, you know, a regime for his first two his first season under Kevin. But that game against Alabama, to me, it just looked different. And I thought if he could continue that style of play, I thought absolutely he was gonna maintain a high scoring average and lead the team to bigger things that year. And I think that's kind of part of what this list does to hold back someone like Jeremy Hazell or Herb Pope, uh, a Jordan Theodore, and even a Fuquan Edwin, who you have into the five spot. 
the overall team success that they had doesn't compare at any level to the first four guys that you have on that list. And therefore, they're really not in the mix when overall they're pretty damn good players. It, it's a fun debate to have regardless of what you think of the actual concept of all decade. Michael, we have another game on the agenda this week, another biggies game, our home opener against the Georgetown Hoyas. Now, normally we try to schedule these behind enemy lines to kind of coincide with our recording day, but unfortunately schedules were screwed up. So we had to record this on Friday and that was before Georgetown beat American yesterday. And I can't think of the final score off the top of my head. So they're six and oh, since the departures of four of their players. And who better to have on with us to discuss all those problems and how they're playing and what we can expect from them from a sports writer who follows them and covers them for the Washington Post. She is a graduate of Northwestern University and covers college sports with a focus on Georgetown, Navy, and Maryland, as well as tennis and the WNBA for the Washington Post. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Ava Wallace. Ava, how are you today? I'm good. I feel like I should be wearing like a wrestling belt for some reason. That was a great introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Hello, Ava. How you doing? Thanks for joining the show. Let, let, let's let's get right to it. So as everybody knows, the play of the Hoyas to start the year has been overshadowed by what has happened off the court, unfortunately. Just to quickly recap, sophomore point guard James Akinjo, sophomore forward Josh LeBlanc, freshman guard Myron Gardner, and junior forward Galen Alexander have all announced that they're transferred from Georgetown. The latter three players were named in civil complaints alleging sexual assault and harassment as well as burglary. It appears that it may have been knowledge of the -the off-the-court issues while these players suited up for early season games. What was the mood around the program from the fans and administration as all of this went down? Uh, Yeah, that was, first of all, that was a a really succinct summation of what's kind of been a a pretty complex uh, issue going on around Georgetown. So well done you, but um, it was, it's been such an interesting time to be, I think, a Georgetown fan, to be covering the team, of course, from my point of view, and just be around the whole administration. Because when this happened, so this the, the initial two departures of Akinjo and Josh LeBlanc were announced on a Monday night right before a really big two-game road stretch for the Hoyas, where they went and they were going to play at undefeated Oklahoma State and at undefeated SMU. Just looking online, since obviously it's not like we were meeting with the team at the time or, or we were really in front of them at all before those road trips fans were freaking out i mean this was a, this hit and was a really big deal not just not even necessarily because of all the potential legal stuff but these were also these two guys that were leaving were cornerstones of Patrick Ewing's program. He were he, They were a big part of his first full recruiting class that he did by himself, and they got a lot of fans really excited about this team last year when the Hoyas desperately needed some good buzz around them. So that was a pretty big gut punch to the team. And of course, since those two guys left, Georgetown has been on this pretty incredible run where they look really good on offense in particular. The defense is still coming along, but you know the starting point guard left, and all of a sudden the ball doesn't stick anymore, and, and the shooting, everybody's shooting has gone up and it looks really good. So that's why I say it's been an interesting time just because I think it's been so up and down if you're a fan of this team to say like, wow, what's going to happen to this team now? How are they going to play in the Big East too? Oh, maybe we were better. We're better than we were. So it's been 
it's been a lot to uh, a lot to cover. Certainly hasn't been boring. <laughs> you could say that again. You know, you kind of mentioned it, but as we came up and saw this thing unfolding, the most surprising fallout is that the starting point guard and arguably the team's best player, James Akinju, also transferred, but he wasn't involved in the civil complaints as far as we know. A any insight as to what the main factor was that led to the decision to leave the program? Yeah, unfortunately, and I've been trying to kind of reach out to people from his camp. I can't really um, repeat any of those conversations that I've had. But from my understanding, and this is pretty public knowledge at this point, is he just wanted he just wanted out. He wasn't uh, his relationship wasn't developing the way he thought it would with Patrick. And to be clear, uh, James Kidjo from you know came across the country. He he's from Oakland. He was committed to another school first and said he ended up at Georgetown because he really had a bond with Patrick Ewing. And this year, it was pretty clear that they were butting heads a little bit more before all of this happened. You know, Patrick would say things after after games like, well, we're, we're playing too selfishly. Right the game before uh, it was announced that Kinjo was leaving, he said he was asked about his um, sophomore guard's decision-making in particular. So not necessarily just a Kinjo, but a Kinjo and McClung. And, you know, he was all wrapped up in that. And Ewing said, you know, sometimes it's going backwards. They're not progressing. Sometimes they're not sharing the ball as much as we need to. So he was clearly, Ewing was clearly um, tiring a little bit of James's playing style. You know, it was kind of said that he was he would go on these runs last year where he would play a little bit of hero ball if the team was down and he would kind of take matters into his own hands. Last year it was fine because it got them into into a couple of pretty good wins. And, you know, everyone was excited about it and everything. And this year it was clear that Ewing wasn't having any of that anymore. So I wasn't I wasn't super surprised when I learned that he kind of wanted out of the program. Now of course that's that is a big hit to the team and everything, but it's not I guess I'll say it's not as though signs weren't there. Well, that's interesting because Tom and I are always kind of critical on this podcast that Kevin Willard gives a lot of coach speak or dances around some of the issues that are kind of glaring after the, the previous game's effort or what we're kind of visually seeing where what you just described, Patrick's pretty direct. Is his direct style just not resonating with the younger generation of players nowadays? You know, I'm not sure because, it, you know, not like like pretty much every coach, Patrick has his, has his fair share of coach speak to be sure. Um, and he has his phrases that he likes to repeat. But that's why it was so stark when he is so direct. Um, and he just kind of tells us, yeah, I'm not happy with this aspect of our game. So it's interesting that you asked that. That was a pretty big um, question when he was first, you know, given this job is, is he going to relate to these younger players? Do they know who Patrick Ewing is? The other players say that they, they really like playing for Patrick Ewing. And, you know, that is a big part of the reason why they came to Georgetown. But I don't know if I would be comfortable saying that it's an across the board thing, but it's certainly, you know, you got to mesh with certain styles differently. And I just, I think some kids maybe don't, don't uh, gel with it that well. Well, unfortunately, that's not the only collateral damage that's occurred from all this. Terrence Williams, a top 100 recruit out of the D.C. area, recently decommitted and opened up his recruitment. You know, he was a player from the 2019 AAU team team takeover that plays in the Nike EYBL circuit. Uh, for those who might not be familiar, he was teammates with Seton Hall commit Dominguez Stevens and recent Duke commit Jeremy Roach. What message does this send to the other top recruits out there that are considering Georgetown as an option? I, it doesn't send a good message. <laughs> it was funny the way that kind of unfolded is that all of the Georgetown fans and, and people in the program were, there was definitely, this is, so this was the day after uh, Williams decided to open up his recruitment, the day after Georgetown kind of went to Oklahoma State and had that big win. So it was like, you know, people had 12 hours of joy and like, oh man, this team might be okay. And then, oh, we lost our top recruit. 
I'm not sure of the message it sends to other recruits. I think high school recruit. I mean, high school recruits is so hard to tell, right? Because they're so they just they go so much based off of their own gut and what they want for themselves. And uh, it's certainly not good just because of the trend of you know when you have a top recruit, other top recruits kind of want to go to that class and say, yeah, let's let's do something together. Let's make something of this here. That's certainly what happened when uh, James Blanc or Josh LeBlanc, excuse me, James Akinjo and Matt McClellan all signed on. They said, yeah, we want to be this class together. Honestly, it, it, more, it was more of a blow for the program, I would say, just because getting roots back into D.C. recruiting, such a rich recruiting area, is such an important part of this program. And Terrence was going to be Patrick's first truly top recruit from the D.C. area. So that wasn't, that wasn't great from that aspect. But, you know, you're right that, you know, it's not a great message for other recruits saying, oh, they lost their top guy. Why would I want to go there now? Now, maybe some some guys saying, well, now I can be the top dog, but it's just such a delicate balance with recruiting, as you guys know, that I just, I don't know if that's a, a good thing for them. Now, this is Patrick Ewing's third season with the team. He's coming off a 19 and 14 season last year where he tied in that big log jam in the Big East for third. And after all this happened, people were just hammering on him on Twitter. I was following the Thompson Towel and I was following all the other Mm. guys on it. In light of all this, what is the opinion of how he's really doing overall? Mm. That is a... Loaded question overall. So let's see. I think people would have different opinions of how this all went down if it weren't Patrick Ewing at the head, honestly. Just just because he's Patrick Ewing and he is the, you know, Georgetown's prodigal son and, and everything like that gives you a lot of a lot of well-earned leeway. You know, Patrick Ewing obviously did a lot for the university. I'm not saying it's not earned, basically. But I think now that they're winning, I, I think that's that's kind of taken a lot of slack off of Ewing's shoulders, even though you know, the guys that left and all the guys that were kind of wrapped up in this were all his recruits. You know, the only people he has left over from uh, JT3's regime are Jagan Mosley, a senior, and George Mirasan, of course, also also a senior. This is this is squarely his program now for sure, but I think the, what are they on now, a five-game running a win streak? Um, yep, has got it. salvaged a ton in terms of how he's doing. And I really think... I really think Ewing's coming out of this um, okay so far. Now, of course, haven't started Big East play yet, but the wins wins can help cover up a lot, you guys. <laughs> You're right. And you mentioned Patrick being the prodigal son, but I think at Georgetown, that only goes so far. I mean, JT3 toward <laughs> yeah, the end the of it, son. it was ugly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. And that only goes so far. Now, now athletic director Lee Reed, um, Patrick has signed a, a – contract for it's pretty lengthy contract and they're pretty comfortable with giving him the time he needs to build a program they feel that programs are built slowly and steadily and that's absolutely how they want Patrick to do this so I don't think I would be a little surprised if the administration uh, was putting him on the hot seat or anything like that I do think that they want to give him his time and of course you know you thought letting go of GT3 was ugly imagine how ugly letting go of Patrick Ewing would be for them man you know, Mike and I. Yeah, are I don't little, think they want to deal with that at all. <laughs> no, Mike and I are a little older than you, and and I actually remember the Patrick days at Georgetown. I mean, he was I, he was Georgetown through and through. Yeah, I yeah. think it's got to be a similar situation to what happened to St. John's, where if it's not working out, a guy like Chris Mullen, who has the same cachet as Ewing, has to kind of walk away and not make it seem as ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But as you mentioned, it feels like kind of winning cures all, right? So after these players all decommitted from the program or uh, transferred from the program, Georgetown surprisingly has gone on a 5-0 and win streak. 
with solid wins at Oklahoma State, at SMU, and over a uh, hated rival, as Tom likes to say, Syracuse. Over that span, <laughs> Omar Yurtz at seven and Max McClung have both averaged 22 a game in that span. And I want to quote Jim Beheim here for a second. He goes, in the postgame. Oh, please. Oh, don't do it, Mike. Guy. Don't do it. I got to do it. It's, it's a great <laughs> quote. It's a great quote. Goes, Only Jim Beheim can get me to root for Georgetown these days, Mike. Come on, man. <laughs> Can I, can I can I read the quote, please? Yes, go ahead. They got rid of a guy that wouldn't pass the ball to anybody and just shot it every time, and that's why they're good now. Ava, I ask you, you kind of already alluded to it. Was this a classic case of addition by subtraction? I, I love Jim. I mean, we, he said that. And we were like, wow, can, you get, can we get you after every game? This is great. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it looked – Honestly, and I was so I was covering the Army Navy game that day. So unfortunately, I wasn't actually at that Syracuse game, but I saw the quotes rolling in online, and I said, I cannot believe this guy was. I mean, you know, and of course now James Beheim, yeah, I can believe it. Um, was just so plainly said it, and I was a little skeptical. But you know, watching more games in person and talking to the guys, addition by subtraction, is, it seems a little. It seems pretty right. And I was uh, on the Big East teleconference the other day, and I asked Pat Ewing about McClung in particular, and saying. You know, what is it about the changes that has he been able to take advantage of? He was so inconsistent earlier this year. And he said he has probably benefited more than anybody else on this team just because of the way the ball moves. He's free to play his game a little bit more without another guard kind of there. And addition by subtraction might be it for sure. Well, but the the roster is a little depleted now. Can they sustain this level of play throughout the course of the Big East regular season? Yeah, and, and before this, uh, Yurt Seven wasn't playing as many minutes as he is now, too. That was something I've definitely noticed. And I asked Ewing that after the last game. I said, you know, all the winnings going on, is any concerns about depth in the back of your mind? And he said, not at all. So, <laughs> so he's not worrying. <laughs> he's not worried about it. And we know that he really did. He was so just like, nope, not even a little bit. Um, but we know these guys run really hard in practice. Um, they talk about that a lot, actually. And so I guess one thing that's interesting I, I have to always remember that Patrick doesn't come from a college background so like his first couple of years here he's still figuring out when to go a little bit easier in practice and what you know all of that kind of stuff to save your guys legs and you know they're feeling heavy in February and we need to be in the weight room in March and blah, blah, blah all this stuff so I have concerns about depth for sure especially since in two games of that five game win streak Jamarco Pickett has had just little uh, wing for them a junior wing has had just little tweaks where he had a cramp because he didn't drink enough water and another one I can't remember he twisted his ankle or something and we're kind of looking around like man if Pickett goes down who've they got to back him up they have a couple of guys but if someone gets injured I mean that's really bad for Georgetown so they've got to be really smart. Well, Seton Hall these days is worrying about a depleted roster as well, especially when it comes to their All-American candidate, Miles Powell. How does the game plan for Georgetown change if he's able to play in this one? <laughs> They'd have to get a lot better at defense a lot faster. <laughs> that, was, that was a little cheeky. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, no, I, I know <laughs> I know that they're... Um, Defense, they always say, is the thing that they work on most of all. And they and they have Georgetown hasn't had a team with a scorer like Powell. I'm tr- I'm trying really quickly to go through. Yeah, I don't. They ha- they haven't faced anybody like Powell yet, basically. And they of course faced him last year, so a couple of those guys know what it's like. But their defense is not. I know where Ewing wants it to be, and it, he says it's getting there. And in this past couple of games they've had at home, defense has definitely been better. But they got a. It's it's unfortunate for them that really Powell will be their first truly dominant takeover a game guy. 
they haven't had a warm up. They had a couple of those last year in the non-conference season where they had truly excellent scores that they could try to wrap up. But um, that might be a rude awakening for Georgetown. Or, you know, the way this team goes, they might do it just fine. Who knows? <laughs> i, I got to stop guessing. Well, I mean, uh, Powell did give them that takeover the game experience in the first round of the Big East tournament last year. For those Hall oh, fans yeah. remember, he sets the Big East record for points scored in the half of a Big East tournament game. So they, they shouldn't be that, that all surprised game. if that happens. With the, the defenders that they've got on court, they, la- they lost Jesse Govan, who, you know, didn't have the quickest feet. And, and Jesse would be the first person to say that to you. But they've got a couple of guys who they're depending on to defend. Guys like Pickett, guys like another guard on the wing, uh, Javon Blair, who would have to kind of step up. And they're certainly a little bit less tested than the guys they had last year, I would say. And, you know, they got a big guy here at seven, but he's not super mobile on defense. So that's something that they would have to, it, it would be a new challenge for them for sure. Now you mentioned uh, Omar Yurd seven, and and my question to you right now is, you know, Seton Hall has got a lot of size, and this is something unique to our team. It, we haven't had this much size in a long, long time with two seven footers, or like we like to say, two legit seven footers. Is this matchup? <laughs> they actually going... measure up. <laughs> oh, you got to hear the announcers, man. When they have nothing to say, they always blow. Out, they always throw that legit seven footer thing in. But That's is, funny. It, is like this that. matchup going to be something that Omar's going to struggle with in this game? You know, again, he has. Well, you're absolutely right. Georgetown hasn't faced a size matchup like that before. Um, they have faced a couple of not legit seven footers. I would say super tall guys and. Uh, your seven handles those one-on-one matchups pretty well. And he does face a lot of double teams where he can kind of just dump the ball either to one of the wings or to Mac McClung. Um, but two seven footers is different from one, obviously, especially two <laughs> legit ones, as you say. So it's definitely, he's going to be relying on his guards a lot more. And now the, the really good thing in that case for Georgetown, honestly, is that in place of James Akinjo, uh, Georgetown now has grants, uh, grad transfer Terrell Allen, who at UCF last, last year and went to the tournament with them and everything played with taco and, and, and everybody uh, like that. But this guy has really good floor vision um, and he's a good ball handler. He's a good distributor. So he'll definitely be able to facilitate and kind of, you know, it'll be on your seven to get out, out of those either double teams or out of those sticky defensive situations. But Allen's really good at getting the ball where it needs to be too. So I think it helps to have a floor general like him in that situation as well. All right, let's stick with this kind of theme of Terrell Allen and the other depth that still remains on this roster. In the recent wins against Syracuse, or excuse me, specifically in the win against Syracuse, McClung, Mosley, and Allen all played 35-plus minutes. With only seven scholarship players available, if Seton Hall were to try to dictate tempo, is there going to be an issue with that depth relative to being able to kind of play a tough road environment? It might be the road environment, honestly, more than the tempo. So Georgetown really does like to push pace, and, and that's why they run so much in practice. And that was kind of the first thing that Ewing wanted to kind of install when he got to Georgetown. He said, I want to play more like the NBA and really get up and down and do all that stuff. So these guys can run, and they can keep up with high-paced teams, but that's different when they're keeping up with a high-paced team who, you know, might have – Miles Powell or has all that size. So I expect that they're just going to kind of ride with these seven guys and, and playing a ton of minutes. Uh, I don't know if it'll catch up to them or maybe matter as much in these early days, but, you know, catch them on the back half when they're playing Seton Hall later in the season. And, and that might be something that's worth worrying about a lot more for sure. 
Well, that's why the Miles Powell situation is such a big X factor. If you watched how Seton Hall played against Maryland, you know, we're missing our top oh, two yeah. scorers if, if Powell's out. We tried to make it a rock fight. We played that game, what was 52-48. Willard even said that he told them not to run offense until 18 seconds were left in the shot clock. So if Georgetown wants to run and Seton Hall is missing Powell and they want to play this kind of grinded out rock fight, what do you think kind of you know, supersedes whose who's play can dictate more than the other? It honestly depends. So the other thing about and and keeping with the theme of I guess Allen and everything is that Georgetown's turnovers have been way down. They've just been a lot less sloppy. So if they slow things down, that might actually work in Georgetown's advantage with the the few guys that they have. But the other thing, I just thought of that we guys are talking. Georgetown has this incredible tendency. They they do their best without question when they're kind of when their backs are against the wall I'm thinking of this year when they went to Madison Square Garden and beat Texas and then you know hung with Duke game after that until really the third quarter after all this stuff happened they go to Oklahoma State and win I don't know where their minds are going to be if they're coming into the Seton Hall game and saying okay well they're missing their two leading scorers that's honestly a big a big um concern that they and something that they work on a lot with Georgetown is saying how do we be more mentally consistent and get up for every single game. Now they've been doing that, of course, a lot more lately. Five game win streak, definitely you see that improvement. It's not like they're going out and losing to UNC Greensboro anymore like they did earlier this season. <laughs> but um, that is something that's something that I, that I thought of. So it's going to be an interesting matchup. So does this all come down to McClung and Yurt Seven kind of getting theirs, or does X, does Georgetown have a player that could be an X factor that Seton Hall fans should keep an eye on? They definitely have a couple of X factors. They're going to want to look at someone like a Javon Blair, for example, their guard who can really knock down shots and he can be that supporting scorer. You know, DeMarco Pickett, the other guy on the wing, super long. If he chips in anywhere from 8 to 12, 14 points, that's really big for Georgetown to have those supporting scores. But you're pretty much right. It's It's got to be, especially in Big East play, it's going to have to run through Yurt Seven and McClung. And that's when Georgetown looks their best on offense and defense, when things are running through those two guys, no matter what. Allen, their point guard, is in a huge scoring presence. He doesn't really take open shots. He's definitely pass first, which is working out well so far for Georgetown. But in terms of scoring threats, it's, it's McClung and Yurt Seven all the way. Okay, Ava, we're going to put you on the spot right now, but we're going to give you an out. Oh, boy. We're looking for a prediction from you, but you can give us two. You could give us one with Miles Powell playing and one without. Oh, gosh. I don't know. That Maryland game really messed me up <laughs> in terms of what I what I understand. It, it oh, my too. gosh. I cover the Maryland women's team, and I, it's literally all anybody in the entire athletic department is talking about. It's so funny. Um Okay, with, let's see, we're at, yeah, it's a late tip, too, for Georgetown. Hmm. Without Powell, oh, this is horrible, you guys. I hate this so much. (laughs) I'm going to get this all wrong. I hate being on record with this, too, because then I go back and think, like, what was I thinking? Um, Let's see. All right, so Georgetown, I know, needs to score, like, at least 80 points to beat anybody. (laughs) That's what they've just said. That's how they got a ride. Without, I'm going to go without Powell, and I think... They slow it down. If I get to 80, it would be a bit like, ooh, without Powell, 78-70 Georgetown win without Powell? Is that fair? Does that sound crazy? You guys got to let me know. Very calculated on your part. I like it. Is that bad? (laughs) I hate this. I always say, I forgot to tell you guys, whenever I do any Big East thing, I'm like, please don't ask me for a prediction. (laughs) Who can predict the Big East? Please. (laughs) Who in the world can predict the Big East? Oh, nobody. With the exception of Nova, there's nothing you can predict about the Big East. (laughs) Exactly. 
Exactly. Do, okay, do you that's, have a, that's do what you I'm have a gut with. though? I mean, do you have a gut as to where Georgetown is going to kind of find you know find their way in the Big East this year? If you, if you had to throw a prediction um, out there. It it's changed. No, I want to see them. <laughs> I want to see them play Providence first. Is that crazy? <laughs> like, uh, you know, Ed Cooley's team should not be a, a benchmark for anybody this year. But I kind of want to see how they're going to handle conference play first. Because if you ask me five games ago, I'd say they're not. They're you know back down at in eighth place or whatever where they were picked before the start of the season. But now, um, I'd say they have a much better chance. But I just I don't know with this team how they're gonna how they're gonna handle all the competition. It's gonna be a tough year in the Big East, I think. I, I don't know that that sounds weird at all, Ava. We're big Ed Cooley fans, and we will watch uh, them play really badly, and then they'll come play <laughs> us, and we won't be able to get a shot up. So yeah. Oh, I totally and, and you know I I love Ed Cooley too. He's my one of the best coaches in the Big East to talk to, but you're absolutely right. I can't predict anything, you guys, so you understand. <laughs> well, Ava, we can't thank you enough for coming on and giving us a view of behind enemy lines. We really appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, you guys. I think we're going to get a good game. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks, thanks for joining. Ava Wallace, everybody. Okay, Mike, we just heard from Ava Wallace about what we can expect from Georgetown. So now I'm putting you on the spot, Michael. What do we do this week against the Paul, and what do we do this week against the Hoyas? Uh, this all comes back down to you know, does Miles Powell play? We we kind of wrapped up the interview with Ava asking her, you know, we'll give her an out and let her pick one or the other, and she decided to go with Miles Powell not playing. My gut says that Powell at least will be back for you know, a pretty significant amount of playing time for the Georgetown game. I think regardless of whether Seton Hall wins or loses the first game, that is an important home game for them to get their biggest slate going. Uh, it's supposed to be a big crowd again. Powell being back. I'm going to give Seton Hall the win against Georgetown. Uh, it's just a toss-up for me against DePaul. So, I mean, it really is. I mean, I, I, I could see it being a repeat of the Maryland game and just being this absolute rock fight. And if Powell comes back, I, I think we got him. But this is the poll. They just, they find a way to get that thorn, you know, in your side. When we have bigger and better things ahead of us, they always seem to find a way to kind of just, to kind of just take a shot at us and knock us back a peg. Well, I expect the team to come out and play well against both teams. I think we end up having a one and one week. I think the poll is going to be too much for us, especially without Miles in their home opener in Chicago. I think they're going to be excited. I think their crowd's going to help them. They're going to feed off their crowd. But I think we come home, and I think we make the Georgetown Hoyas pay for being a depleted roster. You know, it was interesting as we kind of uh, reflect back on Ava's piece of this podcast. You know, it's funny how kind of winning cures all a little bit, right? If, let's say, Georgetown had not found themselves on this six-game winning streak after the crisis that kind of hit the program, it would have been interesting to kind of hear uh, a different take from, from her and, and kind of the the overall sediment of what's going on in their program. But all of a sudden, they go 6-0. and McClung's playing great. You're at sevens finding his groove. And all of a sudden, it's addition by subtraction. If, if hypothetically they lost those guys and they're getting beat up by lesser teams or Syracuse takes them to the woodshed, I mean, we would have been singing a different story, I think, We're, you know, breaking down these questions with Ava. And, and I'm hoping that all kind of plays itself out for the Pirates. You win these first two games. You put the ugliness of the Rutgers loss behind us. 
we get off to a hot start in conference play. Now you're 10 and four and kind of the ship is back on course a little bit. And I think all that bad blood of the non-conference will kind of somewhat be behind us to an extent. So I'm hoping we kind of take a little bit of the page from what Georgetown's been able to do and just kind of let the winning kind of solve the problems of the team. I don't know. I'm excited, Mike. You excited? Of course. I mean, it's, it's always you got the start of the new year. The Big East regular season always coincides with that. You, you knock back a few drinks and hopefully we're celebrating and we're not drinking out of sorrow. And as always, what do we say, Mike? We say go Big Blue. Go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 